apropos it is to our lives. We long to receive from you, Lord, understanding, enlightenment, revelation as to what your will is and your purpose for our lives. And so as always, Lord, we just simply look to your word for guidance. That our hearts and minds will be set upon you. We ask that through your spirit now you'll continue to speak to us individually and corporately as the body of Christ. That we might truly represent you, Lord, as ambassadors and image you perfectly as the Lord Jesus did. Bless your word to our souls now. In Jesus' name, amen. The youth may be dismissed to their classes. God bless you. Turn with me if you have a Bible with you to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 26, as we continue our way through this glorious book. In this chapter, Jesus is preparing for his death. And... It's a transition from this point forward. It is all focused upon him going to the cross, dying on the cross, and then resurrecting and then commissioning the disciples. And that will finish Matthew's good news for, for us, for you and for me. Look at the 35 verses today. And these six paragraphs are some thoughts that we can ponder and apply to our lives here this morning. Jesus, it says here in verse 1 of 26, that it came to pass that when Jesus had finished all these sayings, that he said to his disciples, you know that after two days is the Passover, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders of the people assembled at the palace of the high priest, who was called Caiaphas, and plotted to take Jesus by trickery and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. And so we can see that this is now a transition. He has finished speaking. There's a couple days before the Passover, as we've read there. But he's done. His earthly ministry of teaching the people is finished. And Jesus is aware. He's aware of God's plan and his purpose. There was never a time that Jesus was not aware as we read through other, the other Gospels, especially John, he likes the phrase, for his hour had not yet come. So Jesus knew from the time that he was born all the way through what his mission was. There was never any doubt that he was going to die, that he was going to the cross. In the shadow of the cradle, there was a cross. It was to be that way. And Jesus was always aware of that. And now his hour has come. He's now transitioning from this teaching ministry of declaring the truths that had been kept silent from the foundation of the world. Truths that had, had never been revealed were revealed by the ministry and the teaching ministry of the Lord Jesus. And that's part of the revelation, why he was incarnated, to reveal to you and to me the very nature of God. In, in his, John's version of this last bit of time that Jesus had with his disciples he said to his disciples concerning the father if you've seen me 
you've seen the Father. And, and, and you know, <laughs> Philip's like, well, if you just show us the Father, we'll be, we'll be fine. <laughs> Philip, haven't I been with you so long? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That's perfectly imaging the Father. You want to know what God is like? Well, if God would just show up and show me, I'd get it. Well, just read about Jesus. Read the ministry and, and his way of doing things. And you'll see and understand better the nature of God. He's loving and he's kind. But he doesn't take a romantic view of sin. We know this because it took his life to find, as it were, atonement for it. But he loves us deeply. Did in saying Jesus' earthly ministry, one of, of revelation and teaching God's mind and heart to us, did he teach us everything about God? Is everything that we need to know about God found in the ministry and life of Jesus? I would say not. It's all that we need on this side of heaven. But think about this for a moment. We're going to spend eternity learning about the nature and character of God. We will never exhaust that knowledge. We'll always be growing and learning about the nature and character of God. It is beyond our comprehension. Why is this? Well, for a couple simple reasons, actually. One is that, first of all, God is infinite, and his abilities and talents and his mind and his capacities are infinite. On the other hand, we are not. We are finite creatures. We have limited abilities and limited knowledge. And so this is why it will be an eternal program of learning about God. The point I'm making here is that Jesus understood that at this particular time, he's done. He's finished his course. It's come to a close, and now he's preparing to die. He needed to prepare his mind and his heart, his spirit, and those around him of what was coming. And there's something to learn about this from this passage. Jesus was willing to die. He was preparing to die because he knew that in giving himself, he would bring life, great life to mankind. He would provide the atonement needed for mankind to enter into heaven, being fully justified by God. And this is a truth for all of us. It is in giving up our lives that we and dying to self that we actually bring life to others. It is learning to stop being selfish and self-centered and narcissistic because we are by nature that way. We're fallen. But when we surrender that and we begin to live for other people's and meet other people's needs, dying to self, we actually bring life to others. That is a spiritual principle that Christians learn as we walk with him. And in doing so, we discover our mission. Jesus knew his mission. I think it's important for every Christian to know their mission. Why am I here? Is it just to, you know, have a couple kids, you know, and have these, you know, mountaintop valley experiences for, you know, 50, 60, 70, whatever years we live, and then, you know, just die. Is that all there is to it? No. I think every one of us have a mission. 
That mission, obviously, in a general way, is to image God like Jesus did. When people look at your life, can they tell who, what God is like? Hopefully they can. That they know that God loves them. That they see love emanating from your life. That you have the joy of the Lord with you because you're his kid. You have peace in the midst of horrendous circumstances. When, when everybody else is stressing out, you're just, well, you know, I don't know. God's going to take care of it. I don't know how he's going to do it, but, you know, he said he would, so I'm just leaving it with him. You have a different perspective on life because you belong to him. Now, I think it's important to get that information when you're young. Like, I received the Lord when I was 18, but it was shortly thereafter that the Lord made known to me my mission in a general sense. My mission, if you haven't figured it out by now, if you've know, some of you who've known me for a while know this, my mission, personal mission, is to stand for sound doctrine. Now, I don't know how that, how that was going to play out when I was in my late teens and early 20s, but I knew that that, wow, okay, that was my mission. And so I, you know, that's why I guess I'm in the ministry, <laughs> because I want to teach the Bible. I wanted to learn the Bible. I wanted to know the Bible. And I wanted to make the nature and character of God known so that people could come to know God and have discernment, know what their purpose was in God by learning the scriptures. And so uh, it's important for us to do that. I've kept that same that framework in my mind through my whole life. Is and so I'm able to make choices in regard to that mission. Well, if if I do that, is that going to draw me closer to fulfilling what God has called me to do or or not? You know, Jesus wasn't exactly going to run off at this point at the Passover and you know, I think I'll just take a two-week vacation. You know, he know this he set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem. This is now the time. This is the purpose. We're able to if you have that framework in your mind, you can sort things out. You don't get sidetracked. You know, the people who have the greatest control over their lives are those who understand what their purpose is about. No, yes, no. You can make decisions because you know that if I go this way, that's not going to benefit. If I go this way, yes, this will be what I should do. So you, you actually don't have to exercise self-control that much in that regard because you're on the right path. And that's part of the problem because if you get involved in things that you're not supposed to, you're going to end up with lots of struggles along the way. But just stick to what God has called you to do and you'll be the better for it. And so being aware of his situation, he was also aware that he was hated. The establishment. He, Jesus was well aware that they were going to what they wanted to do to him. I mean, and many times he escaped out of their way and, and went around them and they're like, where did they go? You know, they're trying to kill him. And he just slipped out and went, went, went away from them. The Spirit of God protecting him and guiding him. And so they were out. He was not, not oblivious to the fact that they were out to get him. And, you know, he, he wasn't worried about that. In fact, is I actually think that those scathing remarks in chapter 23, you know, the, the woe chapter... <laughs> Woe unto you, scribes, Pharisees. That pretty much sealed it right there. <laughs> if they weren't mad enough to kill him before then, they were after they heard the truth. Now, they deserved to hear all that. And I'm not saying that Jesus said that to make them mad so they'd kill him. He, they needed to, a solid, stiff rebuke for their hypocrisy and what they were doing to the people of God and barring them from the kingdom of God through their lying, deceitful ways. People could, the public could see through that. They knew they were getting ripped off, but they still loved God and they were willing to put up with it. What were they supposed to do? Not go to temple? Not sacrifice just because these yahoos were ripping them off? 
They understood most of the people understood God's going to get them. And so Jesus waylaid them with his speech. That provoked them to this point. We have to deal with this. And after that public rebuke, there in the temple mount, or in the, within the temple precincts and all, they were embarrassed. They, their hypocrisy revealed. And they said, we've got to kill this guy. We, you know, John talks about, we've got to stop him because the whole world's going after him. And, and if we let this go on, Rome's going to come in and they're going to take our place. You know, that income that we've been, you know, ripping off the people, that's going to go away. And they were, it was a big, you know, security issue for them. But they were conflicted because they were afraid of the people. You know, I guess it would be kind of intimidating if you think two or three million people gather in Jerusalem for the Passover. And you think, you know, you, you take out the number one prophet, you know, the, the guy that's doing the good deeds and they know that's from God, and you kill him publicly right in front of them. And that, yeah, I could see where they might consider that causing an uproar. And that would be a check. But they still wanted to do it. It was a demonically inspiration to, to want to kill him. And so, uh, again, Jesus is preparing uh, because the Passover is near. And again, aware of the, this hatred uh, there. And now, as we uh, move on to verses 6 through 13, we see the anointing of Jesus. Now, if you're familiar with the scriptures, and you've know, read through your gospel, you realize that this actually happened on Saturday before the, what we call Palm Sunday, when he first came into Bethany. Now, for reasons we... Uh, as we look at Matthew's gospel, we realize that he's putting it in here in different order chronologically than it actually happened. But that's not his purpose to fall necessarily chronologically, but to create in the mind of the readers here the contrast between the love that people had for Jesus and the hatred that some people had against Jesus. And so this actually should be John 12, 1, if you're interested in looking that up. Uh, so... He, he wants um, the people to see the loving adoration that his disciples and followers had for him. In contrast to not only the establishment, but as we'll see here later, the, the despising that, that Judas uh, had towards him, especially towards the end of his ministry here. And so what happens here is that they proceed uh, to... Uh, Lazarus' home. This is again John 12, and he's uh, to not Lazarus' home, Simon's home. The leper. Apparently, this is the guy that was healed earlier uh, in Jesus' ministry. But he now goes to his house, and as he's there, uh, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, uh, you know, hey, let's go see Jesus. You know, and as they're there, uh, John reveals that it's actually Mary who's the one who breaks out. Uh, the alabaster uh, flask and breaks it and pours it upon the head of Jesus and his body really and got his his feet uh, his head and his feet again this is John just pouring it over his whole body this perfume this would have filled the whole room this fragrance this, now this was obviously very expensive and it was something that would was sort of almost like a dowry it was of great value something that you would would have and it would be used for you know obviously a very very uh, special occasion and so 
Mary is taking what is most precious to her and she's giving it all. And everything that we give to God must be broken. It is a complete yielding and surrender. Not wanting to hold anything back whatsoever. Once it's gone and sacrificed, there's the giver retains nothing. It's a complete offering to the Lord. This little small container of stone called alabaster was given to Jesus as her gift. And of course, let's read this and then I'll comment further. Uh, And when Jesus was in Bethany, the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him having an alabaster flask of very costly fragrant oil and she poured it on his head as he sat at the table. And when his disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? This fragrant oil might have been sold for much and given to the poor. But when Jesus was aware of it, he said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, but me you do not have always. For in pouring this fragrant oil on my body, she did it for my burial. And surely I say to you that wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world... What this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. Of course, this could have been sold for a lot of money. And yes, it could have been given to the poor. Now, there are a lot of people, Bible-believing people, who look down upon how the money that the church receives is spent. Why in the world did they spend all that money on this? You know, we spend a lot of money, especially in America, on our buildings. And I don't think the Lord really cares how much money is spent on buildings. He owns it all. Money is nothing to God. It means a lot to us. What God is looking at is what He's what He is really pointing out in this passage. God is looking upon the heart of the giver. Why did you give it? It's not so much how much we give, but how we give it and what attitude we give it in. She gave her best. She gave what was important to her. And she was showing the Lord how much she valued him. I don't really think the Lord was pointing at what was given to him, the oil per se, because it was pointing to his death. I mean, this whole chapter is full of point, pointers going towards, you know, crucifixion. But it was the motive behind it. And I think this is important for us. I like what F.W. Bear says in one of his books uh, in regards to giving. It is, quote, the beauty of uncalculating generosity is not to be measured by the yardstick of utility. Let me read that again. The beauty of uncalculating generosity is not to be measured by the yardstick of utility. A lot of us in this room are not extremely wealthy. We don't have a lot of extra. There's some people that do, but they don't have to really, you know, once basic needs are met and the bills are paid they're 
they're fine. They can do anything they want, go anywhere they want, and they don't have to worry about their income. Very few people are on that level. So as a result, we develop a pragmatic approach to spending money. First of all, we cover our bills, our food, and all those kinds of things. And then hopefully, if we have any left over, we can enjoy, take that money and enjoy ourselves a little bit. And, and, and that's fine. So when we see something that's what we consider extravagant, especially within the bounds of the church, we sort of apply that. Well, one of the things we have to be careful is we don't know the heart. Now, we realize, if you read the scriptures, that it was Judas who brought this point up. Because he's the guy that was carrying the money bag. He probably was, you know, working the stock market or whatever, and he was a little bit short and needed to pay the agent a little bit. I don't know. He was pressed for money because that was the, seemed to be the motivation for what we're going to read here next of his betrayal. But he brought this up because he was dipping into the bag regularly. And Jesus was aware of that. He knew that the treasurer was thieving, pilfering. He was quite aware of that. So we just have to be careful that we have be, that we don't misjudge what's being done in the church. If God leads someone to give all that they have, that's between them and the Lord. I'm surely not going to get involved in it. You know, I might challenge them a little bit. Are you sure you were supposed to do this? Are you really, you know, because I mean, you know, it's not like you can give and expect back. I mean, this isn't how God operates, you know. You know. So I almost kind of try to stop people from sometimes uh, from giving. But this is what is important to God, that it's done from the heart. Again, she's doing this as a pointer. Think of the myrrh. You know, this is part of the perfume here. This is one of the things that was given at his birth. You see right away, that's always used in funeral and body burial and all that stuff in this culture so uh, this is what um, is happening here another pointer that Jesus is going to die he's going to be crucified and he's been telling these guys all along you know what's going to happen and I actually think that's what happened here in our next section as we read 14 through 16 Judas agreeing to betray Jesus he says then one of the twelve called Judas Iscariot went to the chief priest and said what are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you and they counted out to him 30 pieces of silver. And so from that time, he sought opportunity to betray him. I think if you do a little research, that Judas Iscariot was part of uh, the Zealots, the, that movement. Uh, Barabbas was part of that. You know, he, he was arrested for insurrection and murder and all. It was, it was the... the the Jews who were not Hellenistic in the Hellenistic uh, they were give people were in that culture uh, the Jews some of them were sort of catering to the Greek influence and they were called the Hellenists and there, were, there was the pure Hebrew like no we don't want the pagan stuff coming in we don't want the world coming in on us we're just kind of pure we don't want Rome ruling over us and telling us what to do and out with the Romans and kill them you know they just got ex there was extreme within that movement. Now it is believed that Judas may have had influence there or had been part of that when Jesus called him to be one of his disciples. And so as we begin to move through that three and a half year period of Jesus' ministry, Judas was sort of become, you can easily see he become disenchanted. Like, you know, I kind of like the idea that Jesus is healing people and he's making people happen. He is really a good preacher, by the way, but I mean, what about Rome? 
What about our enemies? If you really are the Messiah, you know, Caesar's toast. Let's, let's get on with it. Let's build up the army here. Let's deal with this, you know. And he may not have been vocalizing that, but that, there's, that, there's that other agenda that I, I believe that this is the guy that can get what we want. And how many people, how many people want to use Jesus to get what they want? And f- use Jesus to fulfill their purposes. So sad to realize that there are those who think that their main mission on earth is all about money, all about profit, all about destroying the evil that they perceive to be. You know, the Bible says God did establish government. He's going to hold governments responsible for the decisions, but when they get off, it's his responsibility to judge them, and he will. And so, I don't think he, at, towards the end here, that Jesus is really that interested in Jesus' ministry anymore. He realizes that this is not the Messiah that he's looking for. He's really no different than the Pharisees in this regard. He doesn't fit the protocol of what we think the Messiah of Israel should be. So, actually, I've got a couple payments I'm kind of late on. I need money. I don't really know. Just throwing that out there. There's some motivation. There was greed there. It was the love of money. Isn't, isn't that what the Bible says? It's the love of money is the root of all evil. He needed the money, wanted it. How many people, and even believers, are making decisions about just sort of forgetting about their mission? It's all about making a buck, turning a profit. I need it now. They've gotten themselves in over their head and they're in trouble financially. So you begin to make compromises because you need the extra money. It's a trap to not live within your means. And so for whatever reason, Judas got totally sideways to the point that he was willing to betray Jesus because he wasn't what he thought Messiah should be and that he needed the money for some reason, apparently. How many of us put money over our personal relationship with God? I've got to go to work. I've got to provide. Yeah, we all got to go. We all have to go to work, right? We all need to provide for our family. But do we need to do that in exclusion of our developing our relationship with Christ? I mean, let's think about it. You're going to live, well, who knows, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 years unless the Lord comes back. We don't know what our, how long we're going to live, but compare that to forever. Nothing. And so let's think about this. Money now for this period of time. I work all, give all my energy and all my strength for the, for the here and now. And then I've got all eternity to spend with God. But I spent no time learning about Him, developing my relationship with Him. And, well, yeah, well, it's okay. I've got all eternity to figure that out. Yeah, well be kind of nice to know a little bit about your maker before you get there. It makes it a lot easier to live on this side. I can tell you that. But I, there, you know, It's all about priorities. So it's all about understanding your mission. Judas did not get it. Of all the teachings, 
of all the things that Jesus taught, the marvelous wisdom that he shared, the understanding that he brought to the world through his gifting of teaching and presenting the word of God to the people. It went right over his head. It, he had it here. Oh, he knew the scriptures. But he never got it here. You see, that's what meditation is all about. Meditation isn't the guru sitting there. Mm, that, no, 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 no. Meditation is the mulling it over in your mind, contemplating it and allowing that truth to settle down into your soul that, yes, this is right. I'm going to live this way. Now, this is sort of gross, but you'll, and you won't forget it. Meditation is sort of like what cattle do. They've got three stomachs and they regurgitate after they've eaten a little bit of the grass or hay or whatever, the legume. Then they, you know, bring it back up and grind on it. They chew their cud. That's meditation. We're, we're grinding the truth. We're mulling it over within our minds. We're sort of allowing it to sort of dissolve in condensed form of the, and, and just get it and pray that God through the Spirit would apply it to our lives. This is a lost art. In fact, I don't think a lot of Christians even understand how to meditate. This is why I break it down real simple. Read the Word. Pray the Word. And wait on God. That is your, your devotional life. Now, I'm going to digress a little bit here. I want you to be praying. We really got some, uh, what the Lord has shown us for this summer in our church is really cool. In two weeks, I'm going to share it with you. But it has to do with this whole thing. All of what we'll be sharing this summer, all of it depending will depend upon my personal involvement in my devotional life and yours as well. To the degree that we give ourselves to that, all these other things that the Lord is showing us that we'll be doing June, July, and August will be an outflow of that. And so I, I cannot stress it enough to take time every day. I know your job is important. And I'm just as rushed as you are on some mornings. To get out there, you know, I got to go. But you remember, I want to give you a little advice for all you guys that are really working hard. Start your day in the evening before. Get yourself all ready to go and, and plan to spend time with the Lord. Can you give the Lord five, ten minutes? I mean, what's, if you do that every day, I mean, imagine that little percentage, how big of an effect that might have upon your life. I know how much of an effect it has had upon my own life. That's why I talk about it. It's good. It's a great effect. And so this is important. Now, as we move on here, uh, we don't really want to spend much more time with Judas. I don't really care too much about that guy. Uh, verse 17, Jesus prepares to keep the Passover. And there's two things here, the preparation for the Passover and the, actually the identify, uh, identification of the betrayer. Now, verse 17, on the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where do you want us to prepare to eat the Passover? And he said, go into the city and a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I'll keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. The disciples did as Jesus directed them. And that's always good. Do what Jesus says. Then they prepared the Passover. And when evening had come, he sat down with the twelve. 
Now, as they were eating, he said, Surely I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. And each of them began to say to him, Lord, is it I? And he said, He who dips his hand with me in the dish will betray me. The Son of Man indeed goes just as is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Then Judas, who was betraying him, answered and said, Rabbi, is it I? And he said, You have said it. Now, notice he doesn't call him Lord. Nobody can call Jesus Lord except by the Spirit. He re- what is Rabbi? His teacher. He respected Jesus. And this tells you where he was at. He did not receive Jesus as the Lord. In Judas's eyes, Jesus was just a teacher. But that teaching was just here in his head. It never went to his heart because he refused to make him Lord. And this is what's important for us to gather from this. And people say, well, you know, Jesus is your Savior. He needs to be your Lord or you're not going to go to heaven. You know, I'm not going to parse that out. All those who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And I believe God will look for any little bit of repentance and brokenness to save a soul. Too much is given, much will be, will be required. But it, this, it is the lordship of Christ and submitting to him. It is making him king of my heart and surrendering my will in place of his. Because by nature, I am self-centered. I am selfish. I want what I want and I could care less about what everybody else might want. And, but God breaks you of that self-centered idolatry when he begins to sit on the throne of your heart. He gives you a new heart and he changes you be, from serving self to begin to serve others and experience life. That that's what we mean by dying to self, giving up our rights, our desires that are less than holy normally and begin to, to do things things that are pleasing to God you know look at again just reflecting upon the heart of Mary do you think that oil meant much to her (laughs) it's probably the most valuable thing in her possession well they were rich I mean they were living in Bethany you know Beverly Hills you know of Jerusalem they were loaded what's a little flask of oil oh no a lot more than just the monetary value attached to that you need to get that but she thought nothing of it she's the one who's always at the bible study sitting at the feet of Jesus just drinking it in her sister wasn't quite that way Jesus tell her to get in here and help me I'm tired of doing all this by myself oh settle down Martha chill She's actually made a better choice. We'll, we'll all eat. Just we're, We can wait. But right now, you see, if we have to set priorities in our life, is your spiritual hygiene, is your spiritual welfare the most important thing in your life? And if it is not, I'm challenging you 
to repent and make it. Because all the other things in life, if you do that, everything else will fall into place. It will. I promise you. Because that's how God puts it. Spiritual first. See, that's what happened at the fall. The spirit was always to be first. And the body needs subordinate to that. In the fall, that was destroyed. The spirit died. In the day that you partake of this tree, you'll die. So the spirit died. And now the fleshly biological needs begin to take a hold of the human race. And now it's, I want, I want, I want, me, me, me. (laughs) And so there's a reversal of that. There's a dying to the old flesh and biological first needs to now spiritual needs are more important. Because... (laughs) truth be known we're more than physical biological beings we are primarily spiritual beings the part we only see the physical we don't see the 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 invisible spirit part of us the soul and spirit dwell within this tent and this tent is going to die it's going back to the earth and what i will be left with is who i really am and and that is what will leave this place and enter heaven And so this is to be our main focus. This is what the Bible teaches us. And so uh, Jesus is preparing this. Judas has been revealed for what he is. And now verses 26 through 30, Jesus is establishing communion. Uh, We refer to it as the uh, Lord's Supper. It was his last supper. This is the last... Uh, meal that Jesus partook of while he was in his body and we'll, uh, in verse 26 as they were eating Jesus took the bread blessed and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said take it, eat this is my body and then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them saying drink from it all of you for this is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for many in remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now until the day when my drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And so, as they're preparing for the Passover, there were two things. There was the preparation for the supper and there was the revealing of the betrayer and now as they're eating two more things are introduced to us that had never been introduced to the Passover feast before one is the new covenant and also the coming of the future kingdom this is what they were all preoccupied with Messiah was always connected with God establishing his kingdom and this is what we, why we have to be careful with prophecy. It is cryptic because there's a cosmic warfare going on with the enemy. It is a cosmic chess match. If you are reading and follow the threads that go through the Bible, you get this. It isn't just God working with mankind. There's, a, there's an arch enemy. The adversary and his allies are constantly plotting against the work of God in the lives of human beings. And so we have to understand that. 
they misinterpreted it. The Jewish people misinterpreted as Judas did, as the establishment did. They were looking for the here and now, the physical. And God is not about that. He's about the eternal. It's about what he's built, not what was built by human hands. And so Jesus does something very important. He takes the bread. Now, they're normally like a little uh, common loaf that's sort of passed out to everybody. And so he he took that loaf of bread and he he broke it and then he passed passed it around. And they all uh, were taught a new meaning behind the bread. He was foreshadowing his death on the cross, that he was giving his body the bread of life, the the thing that would now sustain humankind through faith. And it would be broken, literally killed. You know, and then he took the, the cup and gave thanks and said, this is my blood. Now, there are those of us who've maybe been raised in the Catholic Church and I know that there's good brothers and sisters that uh, are Catholics I'm not here to bash Catholics in any way Uh, I disagree with several things but that's none of your business that's between me and the Lord right but there are some things that are concerning to me and one of those is the area here that this whole thing of uh, the communion, the, the doctrine of transubstantiation and consubstantiation, and one is that the which we're going to partake of the juice. It is grape juice, just so that you know. And, and some of you, if it's wine, it's not a big deal. You can have wine if you want to, unless you're a Nazarite. Then, well, juice. And then, well, you're really going to have trouble with that one too. So either one you're had, right? <laughs> but the idea of transubstantiation is what, the, what we partake of actually becomes the body and the blood. Well, I just think that's ridiculous. Do you think the disciples are sitting there thinking that? Oh, you mean like... This is like your skin, Jesus? I mean, what? No, they understood that he was speaking symbolically. Why do we have to sort of, you know, get into these theological debates over what seems to be obvious? None of the disciples would have thought that Jesus was literally talking about his flesh in that regard. It was symbolic. And then, of course, consubstantiation is that's really present in and with. And so that's a little more mystical. I mean, what is this? Is it more spiritual or something if we think this way? I think, you know, what we're supposed to do is understand that Jesus was creating a vivid object lesson that would work for every generation after his crucifixion. That when you partake, and you take that cup, and we're going to do that in a little bit here, and you take that bread, I want you to remember what I did for you. Isn't that wonderful? I want you to think for a moment. Jesus did that for you. For you, 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 every one of us. Individually. He gave his body to be beaten beyond recognition. 
to have his beard plucked out, his eyes blindfolded, beaten, spit upon, humiliated, and then have his arms stretched high above his head by a rope and dangling, just barely touching his feet, and then 39 lashes with a cat of nine tails and had his back lacerated, beat to a pulp, looking like, you know, ground beef. Stripes. And then carry his cross. Allow himself to be thrown on the ground on top of that, those wooden beams and nails to his wrists and his ankles and nailed to that cross for you, for me. I should have been nailed to that cross. I should have went to hell for my sins. But he was willing to do it for me because of his great love. No greater love than a person has that he laid down his life for his friends. I no longer call you slaves, servants. I call you my friends. And Jesus laid down his life. What a tremendous object lesson for us. One that we can never forget when we take the cup. We take the bread. But even greater was something so far beyond what anybody could imagine at that point in time that Jesus was actually introducing what Jeremiah talked about in chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. The new covenant. The old covenant was obsolete. It was not able to, to handle the weakness of human flesh, of fallen nature. We don't have the ability to live up to God's standard in and of ourselves. We need a new nature. We have to be born again. God has one sentence for the old man, and that is to crucify it. I need to see myself regularly nailed to the cross. That whatever that besetting habit or sin is it's, that's getting in my way, by faith I nail it to the cross. Who against hope, I believe in hope that God is able to deliver me from the flesh, from the clutches and power of the sin nature. And that's why Jesus died. Not only to provide justification and, and so that God could treat me as just as though I had never sinned, but now to break the yoke and the power through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in my life. I now have power over temptation. I now have power over sin because of the indwelling power of the Spirit. And one of these days, I'm going to be completely delivered from the presence of sin. The penalty of sin paid. The power of sin broken. The presence of sin, absent from the presence of sin when I go to heaven. That's God's mission. That's God's purpose. And it's all part of this new covenant. Jeremiah 31 says, Behold, the days are coming. These days are here. They've been here since the cross. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant I made with their fathers in the day which I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and I'll write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity 
and their sin I will remember no more. Do you realize how privileged you are this morning? You know that sin you committed yesterday and thought word or deed? And you asked the Lord to forgive you? Hey Lord, you remember that sin I did? What, what are you talking about? I, for, I, I forgot that. I mean, isn't that amazing? He doesn't hold us responsible for it when we re- repent and broken. I don't know about you. This is great. I don't have to, you know, I don't have to own a stock truck anymore or a, a trailer. Load up the sheep. Let's go to church, you know, and get out, you know, butcher. I don't have to butcher animals to get right with God anymore. Isn't that great? The lamb has been slain. It's just an incredible thing that the Lord has done for us. And this is the whole idea. Remember, we, we said, I, I will put it into their minds. Yeah, it starts there. But where does it go? Here. Because when it's here, it can get here. And it becomes a reality in my life. And don't despair. Let me finish this last little bit here and I'll tie this together and we'll take communion. In 31 through 35, we need to see something here. Jesus said to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter answered and said to him, Even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. And Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, that this night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter said to him, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And so said all the disciples. You know, Peter did not understand that it is not in the power of human nature. It is not in human talent that we have the ability to please God. He failed because he was putting his faith in himself and his own abilities. And everything that you and I do before God cannot be on that level. Otherwise, it's not acceptable. This is what Paul develops in Romans. They that are in the flesh, or following human nature, cannot please God. It's impossible. It's those who have been broken and have received the Spirit and now allowing the Holy Spirit to to groom and mature their spirit because they're receiving the Word of God in their minds and it's getting into their hearts and it's working in them. Think about the prophet Ezekiel when he took the scroll and he ate it. It was sweet to taste as honey. But when it was digested and went to his stomach, it became bitter. And this is the whole process of God working in the life of a believer. Oh, the truths of God are the sweetest thing to taste. And we just love the truth of God because we know how freeing it is and how challenging it is and how wonderful it is. But then the working out of that truth in our lives is, oh, oh, it's suffering. It's bitter oftentimes. And this is what we see here. You all be made to stumble. You're going to be offended. The things of God offend me, my fallen nature. That's contrary to God. I'm offended by it. What did the ice scandalize? Uh, uh, the word here is <clears throat> scandalize. You know, we get the word scandal, uh, scandalizo. It's you know, it's it's your 
You trip and you fall. You're unable to keep your balance. You're, you're not steady on your feet. You know, we, we, you know what a, we all know what a scandal is. It's, it's something that's not right. So what it is, God has this way, but I want to go this way, my way. And if I go my way, it's just going to cause me to fall. See, Jesus isn't doing it the way I think he should do it, and it offends me. And take heart. We all get offended. We all have a high regard of John the Baptist, don't we? He was offended. Jesus, you're not like I was. I had a really strict diet. I wore funny clothes. And look at you. You're going to parties every weekend. What's up with it? I mean, you're hanging out with sinners. Why aren't you doing it the way I did it? I mean, are you the one or should we look for another? You know, there, this is the stuff that happens to us. And just, I, I'm no different than you. I get offended on a regular basis. I'm just used to it. <laughs> You're kind of losing it there, bro. You need to, you know, get it right. You know, and we can. But God's so patient. He's good. So I, I, I say that before we take communion because some of us, you know, we, we're just, we screw up. We make mistakes. Who doesn't? But that doesn't keep us from coming to God and confessing it. The first, the most important thing to do when you, you realize that and you've been a, a knucklehead, just, Lord, oh, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have done that. That was rude. That was harsh. I know that guy's a jerk in front of me, but I just got to let you deal with him. Teach him how to drive. Do something with him because I just... You know, there's always things that show us where we're really at, right? And when you know where you found, the God's found you out, and that circumstance is brought out, <laughs> just say, Lord, change me. I want to die of that. Don't let your shortcomings and your failures, or even not fulfilling your mission, dissuade you from following God. You're here this morning to hear this. And some of you are older and some of you are younger, but you need to hear this. God has a mission. You're breathing because you still have hope and you still have time to complete that mission. And do not let the enemy come in and condemn you for your failures. You have a heavenly father that loves you so much. He's trying to develop in you and in me the same heart that Mary had. A heart of full-on commitment and devotion that you'll be willing to give whatever he's given to you back in, in, a, in a love gift of sacrifice. Our lives sold out to Jesus become thank offerings. Paul considered himself as a drink offering to be poured out to be a minister to the body of Christ. And the sooner you and I develop that same kind of mind, we may not be called to the pastor. We may not be called to leadership in the church. We may be called to just do what we're doing. But we can still have that same kind of heart. And so it comes to bear when and, and these things are going in our life. This is where it hits, the rubber hits the road, so to speak. You're going to take that cup and you're going to think about what Jesus did for you. You're going to take that bread and you're going to think about what Jesus did for you. So we have this whole thing of time covered right there in communion. Every time we got to pass what Jesus did. We examine ourselves in the present. Where are we at in this process of God developing us and putting his law into our heart? 
And then this is what's really cool. You have a very bright future. Jesus said, I'm not going to eat, I'm not going to drink this cup until I establish my Father's kingdom. Isn't that cool? You're going to be part of it. I'm going to be part of it. I can't hardly wait. There's probably reasons why the Lord's waiting. I'd like to know what they were, but he hasn't shown me. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. So, fellas, if you'll come and pass out the elements to everyone. And I want you to just, however you feel that you want to take it. You want to take it as a family, just you and your wife bow your hearts together. If you want to do it individually, it's once that cup and that bread is in your hand, you do business with God. Take a few moments, and then the, the team is going to close us with a song. Father, I thank you for the word that you've given us. I thank you for the elements that you brought new meaning to in the Passover feast, Lord. And now we ask that you would do a special work in each of our hearts through what we've learned today and been reminded of. Choose that we know. Make them a reality in us, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.